Hello there. Welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. As you know, at Bible Discovery, we're reading through the entire Bible this year. The reading plan is obviously fast, so this weekend show is one of the answers to help you kind of digest what it is that you're reading. So on this show, we aim to answer big questions that pop up as we read through the scriptures. And we also love to discuss and answer some of your questions that you send us via the comment section and also uh, through email as well. So if this is your first time here, my name is Corey and I'm joined uh, by Matlock, my husband. Hey, what, Matlock. What's going on? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to let everyone know what <laughs> scriptures that yes. you were covering this we're week? We're doing Isaiah 54 to, uh, not Isaiah 54, to Jeremiah 9. Yes, Isaiah yeah. 54, yeah. Jeremiah and I. That's right. These are some of my favorite places in scripture, if I'm being honest. Yes. Because I, I just find that Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're really historical because, of course, they're prophets of God, but they overlap with historical events that are going on during the time period of the kings. So I love it. I think it's really cool. But there are a lot of interesting things that pop up as we go right. through. So we're going to be asking questions about fasting today, specific questions about um some of the prophecies, for example, of Jeremiah, he talks about Jerusalem as the Valley of Slaughter. So we're going to be talking about the significance of that. We're going to be taking a look at uh, the new heavens and the new earth and, and how that works with life and death. Lots of good things. That's right. And specifically, our today. big question for today mm -hmm. is, should Christians fast? What is the point of fasting? And is fasting a command? So that's ah, interesting. We're going to get fasting. into that at the end of the very last question. We'll we'll deal with that. Yeah, we're going yeah. to circle back to it, and that's going to kind of be our big big question discussion. today. That's yeah. right. That's right. Okay, Malik, I yeah. want to start it with a question for you. Then. Sure, go okay, ahead. So this comes from Isaiah chapter fifty-six. Right. Uh, and here's the question. Carol asks, "My question is regarding what we can and cannot do on Sabbath." For example, do not kindle fire on the Sabbath. What do they mean by that? That was in the Old Testament. Is that the same for the New Testament? Advice on things to do on the Sabbath. Thank you. All right. Cheryl. And I'm sure this question is coming up because we're dealing with Isaiah 56. Yeah. Um, and, okay, so there are a couple things here. Now, the skinny of it is, can we kindle fire on the Sabbath? Yes, we can. And we're going to talk about why that is. And, Corey, I'd love you to chime in at any time. Um and uh, is it the same in the New Testament? So is it a one-for-one? One? Are the laws in the Old Testament carried over to the New Testament one-for-one? One? And we know that's not the case because circumcision is no longer necessary at all for deliverance or for salvation or anything like that. It's not part of being a covenant people. Yeah, you know, and, and, and circumcision when we're talking about the New Testament, because this was a big issue yes. uh, in the New Testament, um, circumcision was representative of following the Mosaic law. Yes. So I just want to add that. Yes, in. for so sure. So when you say we know that circumcision wasn't required for Gentile uh, believers in Christ, incorporated in that is the rest of the mosaic law that's right so we're not so right exactly so we're not bound to the mosaic law mm -hmm. in that way and that means is made very clear um so specifically here you want to, there's a couple of things uh what is it meant by kindling fire it, like why even have that law in the first place so one of those things has to do with working in general um so if you take for instance uh exodus 16 when the man is coming down from heaven uh God even ordains so that the manna that comes out on the sixth day will last to the seventh day. Because normally in that situation was when the manna was coming down from heaven, it would only last a day and then it would get all moldy and warm and there'd be worms in it. So they couldn't eat it the next day. They had to eat exactly the portion they were given that, that on that day. But on the sixth day, it would last to the seventh day because God essentially didn't want them to be working on the Sabbath. They were supposed to rest. So I think when it comes to the kindling wood, it's the same process of resting. The key here is that um, the point of the Sabbath is that you're not working, you're resting. And you kind of see this, hints of this later coming in the New Testament about what it means to work and what it means to rest. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, this wasn't, so in our minds, a lot of times we think about this individually because that's the, the, the society and the culture of the West focuses more and emphasizes more on the individual. Right. But um, Sabbath as a concept was, was seen from a more macro lens, if I'm saying that correctly. So it was seeing, seeing it more from a community perspective as yes. well. So every, the, basically the entire economy shut down. Right. On Sabbath. 
Yeah. Whereas your servants weren't even working. You weren't buying and selling everything. Your right. entire economy shut down. And that was seen as bad. Like that, that was bad for the economy. No other society did that. Um, and nor the society that, that Christianity was a part of in first century right. Roman Empire. So interesting to also exactly. throw that in and the mix as well. And this becomes us. And the reasons, okay, why? Well, God says specifically in Ezekiel 20, 12 mm. and verse 20, as well as Exodus 31, verse 13, that this is a sign that you are God's people. Mm-hmm. And, and for what reason? To show that it is God who makes you holy. So in other words, you're not working for your holiness yeah. by resting in God, not just falling asleep, by resting in God. It is God who makes you holy. So the point of the Sabbath was to rest in God, not just to fall asleep and like, do absolutely nothing the whole day. Yeah. Um, and that right, that would be like a legalistic way of, of a kind of approaching the, the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big factor there, I think. So yeah, right. and 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 just to clarify, when you say between you and God, you mean the Israelites? Right? Yes. So, well, so double. When, Double. It would be between you and God and also Israelites as a whole in God. It would be that, that key yes, aspect. Yes, but you, like you as an Israelite, you're not talking directly to Carol. Oh, of course not. Yeah. Right. So, right. No, that's what I was just, <laughs> Sorry. That's what I was trying right. to clarify Yes, yes, here. for sure. You so as an Israelite. Right. So because we have circumcision was the sign of the covenant between Abraham and God. So that's Abraham's right. descendants. So even Ishmael and 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 uh, was circumcised as well, though he was not. Uh, the Israelites, right? right? So we've got a, the the sign between Abraham and God, the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision. And then the sign of the covenant, the Mosaic law, the sign of that between God and the Israelites was the observation of the Sabbath. So not only was their physical flesh, you know, kind of to, to say it kind of crassly, a chunk of their flesh was taken out. Now a chunk of their time was also taken out. Right. So. Yes. Kind of a different way of looking at it. No, that it's way good. As well. So, the question is: Are we obligated and required under law to to rest on the Sabbath, like in the Old Testament? Now, if you don't rest, you're it was punishable by death. So, if you're going to say yes to that answer, you have to kill all these Christians out there. Okay, so it doesn't really work. When is what I'm saying? The answer is no. We're not obligated in the New Covenant to follow and rest on the Sabbath in the same way. Having said that. There is a Sabbath in Christ. So is it good to corporately follow the Sabbath? I think, I believe so. But the order of priority is different. It's not that I follow the Sabbath to work to obtain my salvation, because that would make resting a work, if that makes sense. A work to, if I, you know, if I rest all day, well, I did that. I, I'm earning my salvation because I'm, I'm resting all day. It's like, okay, well, no, that's not how this works, right? It's, um, there's a priority, uh, there's a mispriority there. Anyways, so the point here is that, um, when you rest in Christ, right, Christ is actually the one making you holy. And we see this in, in, in Matthew 11 and in Matthew 12. And at the end of Matthew 11, maybe I'll just pull it up. I'll just pull it up. The end of Matthew 11, it says, here it is. Come to me, all who are heavy, uh, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and lean and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And later on, Acts fifteen verse ten, you hear about Peter talking about taking on the yoke of our fathers that we could not bear. So the, the, there's elements in the old that don't apply one for one today. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. But Christ is. Sabbath rest. We see that in Hebrews and stuff like that. And the question is, what does that mean? Well, Sabbath is being a sign, points to being made holy. It's a sign that points right to Christ. It's a sign that points to God. So that's really important here is that when, and the point of us following, let's say the Lord's day on the Sunday says Jesus rose again. So you have two, these two dynamics here. Okay. In one sense, you have uh Sabbath, which was made during the, the creation was made holy by God, right? That is, as Jesus says, Sabbath was made for uh, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You think about that. Like what is man? Well, all Hebrews, when they hear the word man, they think Adam, right? And there's an uh, etymological parallel that's made between man and Adam. Anyways, so my point here is that Sabbath was made for man, Adam, and not Adam for Sabbath. In other words, what you're dealing with here is that Sabbath was part of the old creation. So what are we called to? 
Well, we're called to new creations, the new heaven and new earth. So what does that mean? The second Adam. So we celebrate our rest in Christ. Um, if that makes, hopefully that you could pull those parallels over. So Jesus dies, rests on Sabbath, right? Dies on the Friday, rests on Sabbath, and then rises again on the Sunday. Because he rose again, you therefore celebrate the new heavens and the creation of the new earth and what we're longing and hoping for as part of our faith. Um, and that's what we're celebrating. We're not celebrating the old creation, we're celebrating the new creation. And this is a sign also of what's to come. That's why we gather together on Sunday. It's the sign of the assembly. God will gather all those among him to him. So, uh, and, and the final judgment you have before you as the pastor, symbolic of Christ teaching those, right? Just symbolic. And you have the people in, in, the, in the pews or in the, the congregation listening to that, all gathering to what the Christ has to say. It's the same principle. It's carrying over until that final judgment day. Anyways, long story short, not to get up too off track, is that um, rest is found in Christ, not in old creation, but in new creation. So that's what the new sign is pointing to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. So when we get caught up and resting, we have to rest on Saturday. like Or Sunday, depending or, on... Right, or unless, and, you, and make it a salvation issue. That's yeah. not what this is. Yeah. It's not a salvation issue. Is it a good thing to do? Absolutely. Yeah. Right? It, like, it, it, and, and in most of our... In, in the Western society today, for, mo- for a lot of us, I, it is possible to take a Sabbath yes. with the way that our work schedule and the way that our society is established. Exactly. Uh, think, though, back to first century Christianity, how elite of a religion Christianity would have been if a Sabbath law were to have been in place. It would not have been possible for any of the lower classes of Roman society because within Judaism, within their society, they already had a Sabbath built in, not so for those elsewhere in the Roman Empire. So that's why we see, for example, when we look at letters talking about early Christians and not from, not even from a, a, a good perspective, I believe it's one of the letters of Pliny the Elder who talks about how Christians uh, were in the habit of getting up before dawn and meeting on the first day of the week they got up before dawn and met on the first met so early yeah because they had a full day of work ahead of them yeah right but if a sabbath law had been imposed on christians early on it would not have been a sustainable thing for yes for many many members like unless you were upper class and were able to to afford to do that. Right. So Christianity would have become a quite an elite religion, but not so. There was not a Sabbath law, and that that was the great great equalizing force of Christ in that way. Where now he was extending, he was opening up the kingdom of God to all nations, not just to That's a right. nation who had been formed so that they could follow the Mosaic law, right? right. Formed with the Mosaic law, so. Uh, so yeah, just I just kind of no, yeah, wanted that's, that's to add in that branch of yeah. Thought. There's a lot of you know intricacies and dynamics and nooks and crannies when it comes to this but discussion. But I think you're right. A lot of a lot of Christians get stressed out. I think because this seems to be one of those rules that we could follow. So should we follow it? Do yes. we have to follow? It? And there's a lot of anxiety over over am I doing this the right way? And that that defeats the point of resting in Christ, I think. That, yes. you know, it's not our righteousness. It's not our works. It's not those things that save us. It is literally those things do, c- cannot. They are dirty rags, right? If we look at the context of scripture, it is Christ's righteousness that we, that, that God puts on us as a garment. And that is what saves us. So but I think your point is well taken. Is it a good thing? Is it a beneficial thing to, to rest in God and have time set aside to remember these things, that it is he who makes us holy and not we ourselves? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be fan- that, that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and that's what Sunday's for. We, we, <laughs> we set aside Sunday for that. But like yes. you were saying, the early church, that wasn't possible. You're a slave. You can't do it. He won't let you free. So it just, it wasn't, necessary in the early church. Now, the question is then, you know, which is a bigger discussion, as the, the kingdom of God grows, should it be implemented right. as right as something that we can do? And I'm like, well, absolutely. Why not? Um, having said that, it's like, it's like, what is the Sabbath? Who is the Sabbath, right? Christ is our rest. That's important. Now, I'll read for you just quickly here. Colossians verse 2, sorry, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, literally, Paul's like, these were old creation. We are new creation. Mm -hmm. And we know this because even in Revelation, um, Paul says this, uh, not Paul, sorry, excuse me. John says, there's no more sun nor moon giving its light. What is Sabbath? It's about new moons. Mm -hmm. So you have this idea that like it's not about rigidly following. There's a spirit behind the law that's that's being carried over. So um, it's like the, the spirit of circumcision is carried over to circumcise your heart. The spirit of the Sabbath is carrying over to, to into Christ, to following Christ on the Lord's day. And so it's not a one for one, okay? That's what's important there. And then also on top of that, we have uh, Romans as a, a way of kind of, okay, so like how do we navigate that, Okay. Romans 14, verses 5 to 6, and also 13 to 14. We're going to read that real quick. Uh, one person esteems one day as better than another, say a Sabbath, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats and eats in, the, in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. In other words, the one who observes the day, observes it in honor to the Lord. The one who seems all days the same, in honor to the Lord. Paul then says, in verses, I think I said, 13 to 14, um, he says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Okay. Long story to, to kind of round that out a little bit there. So it's, some people see the importance in a day. Some people see that they're all days of the same. The important thing here that Paul talks about Romans 14 is to retain unity within our opinions because within these opinions, Paul very clearly says that these are opinions. Within these div people trying to make divisions stuff like that, they are just opinions because they are not consequential towards salvation. Are they good? Do they change the culture? Of course. So we should work together to change the culture because that's what it does. Looking at Sabbath changes a culture from, let's say, a pagan culture to a Christian culture, which is a good thing. You want to make, right? A Christian culture creates a lot of beautiful uh, dynamics within society. And there's a trickling effect of good laws that can happen, people understanding what it means to be good just by virtue of having a Christian society. So it helps change culture, but does it amount to salvation, right? No, not within this context. So it's not a salvific thing. Um, so anyways, the point here I'm just trying to make is, I hope I didn't go too far and get too broad in this, is that to reiterate what I've been saying for, time and time again, we don't apply the law, the letter of the law one for one, uh, in terms of the Sabbath, even though it's in the 10 commandments, right? What does Christ say is the, the top two commandments? Lord, what's the most important commandment? He says to the Pharisee, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 18 verse 19 or 19 verse 18. I always forget. And then Deuteronomy, the Shema. So that's really important. Um, he doesn't highlight the Ten Commandments as the most important rules, though they are, right? You see, they're really important. But that's but you have to look at them in a covenantal context of a group of people um, and that they are signs of things to come and that our, us gathering together for the Lord's Day is equally like the Sabbath. It's the spirit of the Sabbath continued. So I think I've really ranted there, but... <laughs> But I, I think that helps. I don't know. It's pretty broad, but I hope. I think that. I hope that helps. I. I don't know. What All do you right. think? Hopefully, hopefully, it helps. I think we need to move on to. The yeah, next we question. need to. Okay. Okay. So the next question is based around Isaiah chapter sixty-five, which has long been a cause of debate among Christians, among theologians. Uh, it's really, it's a really interesting chapter. But here's the question specifically, Matlock, because it's not kind of broad scale. What is Isaiah sixty-five? But here's the question. Me again. Based on Isaiah 65, verse 20, mm. if there is no death in the new heavens and new earth, then why is there still death according to Isaiah 65, verse 20? So Isaiah 65, uh, that, that section, yeah. uh, so back in verse 17, opens with, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. 
but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And it continues to go on. And, and uh, this chapter ends with the famous, um, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Right. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Uh, the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Okay, so that's kind of context okay. for this question. So it opens up talking about I the new heavens it. and new earth, but then also speaks about how it does seem to imply there will still be human death because it says the one right. who dies at a hundred will thought to and will be thought to be a mere child. The wages of sin is death. So if there's death and there's sin, right? Mm-hmm. And you see that right in the verse afterwards. Okay, can't believe you. It's me again. Sorry, guys. It's you again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. So I think first off, there's a couple of things. I don't have the greatest answer for this. Okay. Well. But I'm going to take a stab at it for my limited knowledge on this question. Um, I think what would help us better understand is if, if you believe in the literal thousand-year reign of Christ, I think this helps mitigate this whole dynamic. Um, so if you recall, Adam and Eve, right? Jesus, God says to, uh, eat Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit on this day, you shall die. And the early church fathers equated this day, right? That day, meaning to be actually a thousand years, not necessarily, but they said it could be, um, because the Peter says on the, uh, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. Now that's supposed to mean that time is irrelevant to God. But they said, like, look, if you look at it also in a, in a, in a literal way, uh, ad, no one reaches a thousand years. No one surpasses a thousand years. A thousand years could be like a day, and Adam lives to like, you know, 900 and or so and uh, passes away. So he dies on this day, on the day. Um, and if you take that to be like the average lifespan of man, say, pre-fall, without the... Uh, uh, the, the life-giving power of the tree. Because the only reason Adam and Eve weren't immortal by nature, the tree was giving them life. That's the mm-hmm. reason why God said, you know, put a chair, uh, a guardian there, like make sure they don't touch the tree lest they live forever. Okay, so if mankind lives to a thousand years, let's say just by nature, and you see that dwindling, right, as time goes on in the timeline, then what you have is when Jesus Christ returns, you have this restoration, this quasi-restoration back to that thousand-year state of people living to a thousand years. So that's how you can get this idea of um, people uh, sinning and dying in that thousand year span. Because in that thousand years of Christ reigning literally, in the thousand year reign. Uh, we just talked about like that, Satan, that, that figure comes from Revelation 20 as well. Yes, Revelation 20. Sin is released. Mm-hmm. And there's a great war that happens. So there is sin that happens even in that thousand year reign. And, and Gog and Magog war, that's the big climactic thing that happens as well. After, so, yeah. Afterwards, right. And then all of a sudden, God takes death, right? He takes Hades, and he takes the sea, and he throws it all away, right? Puts it in the lake of fire, and he tosses it out. So my point here is that in the new heavens, new earth, the precursor to that is that literal thousand-year reign. And that could be intimately tied with this, mm-hmm. um, in which people are living to their edinic, their natural edinic state, a thousand years, yeah. let's say. And then also, um, you know, uh, after that, then the, the official new heavens and new earth comes its way. So when Christ comes, it's the beginning of the new heavens and new earth, but then it's officially comes after the thousand year, his thousand year reign. And there's still sin within that and death within that. Um, that's I'm throwing them there as a possible option because I don't know for sure because I haven't done much study into the subject. Yeah, so there's three main views. If I'm remembering correctly, there's three main views about Isaiah chapter 65. Right. And so I would say the first one, um, the the first view is, gener- is that Isaiah is talking about an idealized restored Jerusalem. Because remember that 
that the prophet Isaiah had been prophesying the, the future destruction of Jerusalem and how Jerusalem was so sinful that, that it was going to be destroyed. So remember the time period that Isaiah is living in, we've got, he's living, you know, um, he sees the fall of Northern Israel, the, the country of Northern Israel, he prophesies it and then he sees it happen and he lives through the Assyrian invasion of Judah and Jerusalem, where Jerusalem just kind of squeaks by, right, and, and survives. But he's looking forward into the future to the Babylonian Empire. He he knows God has revealed to Isaiah that Babylon's going to come in and destroy Jerusalem and rid Jerusalem of its sinfulness. So Isaiah also prophesies the, the reconstruction of Jerusalem as do the other prophets. So the, this first view sees Isaiah 65 as an idealized restoration of Jerusalem. Like things are going to be so good. They're so evil right now. And they're going to be so good then. There's going to be long life for children and for old men. There's going to be peace. There's not going to be animosity. There's all of these things. So that would be um, one view of Isaiah chapter 65. Another view of Isaiah chapter 65 is the millennial view. So, right. so looking to the millennial reign of Christ to explain Isaiah chapter 65. So it's partially a, a realized new heavens and new earth, but not quite the realized right. new heavens and new earth. And then another way of viewing this is some people see Isaiah 65 as definitely being about the ultimate creation of the new heavens and the new earth. Now, each one of these views has different complexities that they have to reconcile with some of the language of Isaiah 65, um, which I mean, if you if you read Isaiah 65 with each of those, those viewpoints in mind, you'll see what I mean. Um, each one has uh, varying levels of complexities. <sighs> Here's where I kind of land on this. Yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, my eschatological views, if I'm being honest, of you know the end times and how things are going to be wrapped up are still in a bit of um, a limbo. I, I hold, I definitely have ideas um, that lean historical premillennial, but um, I'm holding it in. Tandem. I, I yeah. could be. I, my mind could be changed. Yes. I'm still. I'm still studying and I'm still researching. Um, however. In my mind, where I land and 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 where I would throw in a word of caution is that God has a way through the Old Testament prophets when we see how Christ's first coming fulfilled the prophecies that are in the scripture. It's often in surprising and unexpected ways. But when you look back, you're like, oh yeah, oh, oh yes, it actually does perfectly fulfill these, although I may not have completely expected it to happen in that way. Yeah. So I definitely think that that it that a blend of these views may be what's more right than each one of these views in right, of right. themselves. And I don't want to make that sound like it's a cop out answer, but that's honestly what I think is that right. is that this could be both about uh, an idealized Jerusalem, but also be telescoping into the future to a, a very real millennial reign of Christ. Um, but also be telescoping into eternity as well. Right. Into the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. And well, if, if you go, because with the ideal view, like this has to be kind of figurative language, mm -hmm. right? It has to be like, oh, when it says, um, for the young man shall die at 100 years old, not literally, but figuratively, it just means he's going to be really old. And it's right. It's like uh, he's young. And it's like, that's strange. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like, it's supposed to be like more figurative in, in itself. Yeah, it definitely um, use, utilizes poetic language, but almost all prophecy does. Yes. So that, that would be the, the one side. Is that like, it would be the battle. And once again, it's prophecy. Yeah. It's a battle. It's a, a battle. A matter of if it's a literal or if it's uh, painting like a figurative uh, uh, feeling behind what what is to be expected, essentially. Right. Um, And once again, I don't know for sure. Uh, no one knows yeah. for sure. The millennial rain... Uh, one sounds that sounds appealing. Yes, it does. Um, because I don't think the ultimate it, it resolves, really works, but it, it resolves a lot of the theological questions about death. Yes, but at the same time, um, we're just yeah. I'm just going to hope in God, and we're going to figure out what goes on from there. But yeah, I, I, I'd say 
Eileen Millennial Reign, I think, on this one. on this Because once again, like Corey, I'm pre-mill leaning, but I'm not, you know, uh, I'm still figuring, researching, studying, and understanding these things. Because again, we're not infallible. So no. <laughs> we're just trying to figure these <laughs> things out. Definitely not. That's definitely right. not all knowledgeable. All right, Corey. Uh, yes. Let's move on. Let's move on. All right. <laughs> I have a question for you. It's a Bible question. Mm-hmm. What are the major differences between Isaiah and Jeremiah? And is yeah. Jeremiah in chronological order? Uh, no. Jeremiah is not not in complete chronological order, much like Isaiah. Isaiah is not all in chronological order. But a main difference between Isaiah and Jeremiah is just their time period. So I know we're, we're, we're moving back and forth between Isaiah and Jeremiah this week. Um, so they both tell us right off the bat their time period, which I love, right? In Isaiah chapter one, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, those are the kings of Judah that Isaiah prophesies through and Jeremiah, it's different kings. So Isaiah, and I just kind of talked about it a little bit. He lives at the time where the main threat to Israel and Judah is the Assyrian empire. The Assyrian Empire is on the move and God uses them to destroy northern Israel and their capital city of Samaria. And he uses them to judge very harshly the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital city of Jerusalem and its kingly line descendant from King David. They escape literally by the skin of their teeth. So only Jerusalem is left standing of all the fortified cities of Judah. And this is verified not only in Isaiah and Kings and Chronicles, but it's also verified in the records of Assyrian King Sennacherib himself, right? This is a very, very highly documented historical event, the sacking of Judah, um, but not the taking of Jerusalem, the fact that Sennacherib was unable to take Jerusalem. So, and I mean, Jerusalem became, Judah became a vassal state Hezekiah was not free. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, excuse me, were not free. They owed yearly tribute to to Assyria, and yet they lived on. So then the time period that Jeremiah lives in, you telescope forward into the future, a few generations, and Jeremiah now lives in a Judah that has been largely rebuilt, and the Assyrian Empire has fallen to the Babylonian empire. So there's there's some freedom here or potential freedom for the kings of Judah, these descendants of David. So the question is, are they going to rely on God or are they going to make alliances with these other countries in order to try to resist the Babylonian empire? And so that's the tension that we see in mm. Jeremiah. And of course, unfortunately, with the exception of a few kings like Josiah, um, and, and of course, Hezekiah, most of the kings of both Isaiah's age and especially of Jeremiah's age are apostates. So they're involved in very heavily involved in um, religious practices that go against the covenant that they had with God. Right. So that's the those are the main the time period is the main difference between Isaiah and right. Jeremiah. So, good. Yeah, that's what I'm All I right. Saying. Well, I think you nailed it. Awesome. I think we're good. Let's move on to the next question. Let's move on. All right. So another Bible question for you, Corey. Okay. Regarding Jeremiah 7, what is the, the significance right. of the Valley of Slaughter? Right. Okay. Um, I did talk about this on the Bible Discovery Program when we got to this. I, I think this is tremendously interesting. So the Valley of Slaughter, uh, we get this phrase from Jeremiah 7, but also from Jeremiah chapter 19. And uh, it refers to the Valley of Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself. Uh, and it is, it's a judgment. Obviously, God calling Jerusalem and the valley beside it, the Valley of Slaughter, is not a good thing. Um, but the, the valley itself was called the Valley of Hinnom. Um, beside Jerusalem and what had been going on there was child sacrifice according to the scriptures, according to Jeremiah and Kings and Chronicles, there was child sacrifice going on in the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. It was also called Topheth, the place of burning. Um, and so I'm just going to read, I, I'm just going to read some Jeremiah 7 to you before we move on. Uh, Jeremiah 7 verse 30 
starting in verse 30. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. So that's the temple in Jerusalem. They have built the high places of Topheth, of burning, in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury the dead in Topheth until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. Uh, chapter 8 goes on with this judgment. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings and officials of Jerusalem, the bones of the priests and prophets, and the bones of the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They will be exposed to the sun and the moon and all the stars of heaven, which they have loved and served and which they have followed and consulted and worshiped. They will not be gathered up or buried. They will be like dung lying on the ground. All right. That's pretty good. Pretty rough stuff. <laughs> pretty rough stuff. Okay. And, and Jeremiah 19 is is much the same. I, I'm not going to read all of it, but it 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 goes on and it, it talks about it talks about this great judgment and, and and it says much of the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 19. But when it gets down to verse 12, it says this: This is what I will do to this place and those who live here. It was a whole list, and then that sentence declares the Lord: I will make this city like Topheth. So there's this divine irony that God often does when it comes to sin, where he often brings judgment in the same form as the sin that was committed, the heinous sin that was committed. So in this case, the heinous sin is not only idol worship, but idol worship that involved child sacrifice. So it involves the desecration of human life the desecration of innocence. And so God, God says, I am going to desecrate you in the same way. There's not going to be enough room to bury your bodies. So your bodies will be subject to the same treatment that you are giving to the bodies of your children. You are not giving them respect. You are not giving them burial. So guess what? Your bodies are going to be food for the wild animals and they will be laid bare before the signs of your so-called gods, the signs of many of the gods that they were worshiping were the sun and the moon and the stars. And then God goes even further because it wasn't just that current generation of Jerusalem and Ju Judah that had been sacrificing their children. It was earlier generations as well. So God says, when the when, basically when the army comes in, the army is going to be so eventual, they're going to pull out the bones from the graves and expose the bones. So even that those past generations, they are going to lose the honor that they had in burial and they too will be exposed because they, they deserve that. So this is a much harsher version of the judgment that, that I think God brought on, on Egypt when we yeah. see in the Exodus. So we see when, when uh, the Pharaoh of the Exodus um, had ordered the, the baby boys of the Hebrews to be thrown into the Nile River. Well, what's the first sign? What's the first plague that comes on Egypt? The Nile River turns to what? Blood. God is exposing what it truly was. It's mm. evil. The Nile River may be your source of life. It may look like your source of life, but in reality, it is a source of death for you. And it's the same here. Jerusalem may look great. You may look like you've got it all together, but actually you are dead and you have desecrated yourself. So that's the significance of the Valley of Slaughter. It's a tremendously interesting, um, it tells us so many interesting things about the character of God, about what he values, valuing life, um, and what he takes seriously, which is the desecration of life and the desecration of innocence. That's very good. So I think that's, that's good, Corey. That's that.
Thanks. That's great. So you're ready for the big question? For the big question? Let's do it. Let's, Let's do it. To the big question. Okay, Matlock. Should Christians fast? And what is the point of fasting? What do you think? And is it a command? Is it a command? Okay. So let's start off with should Christians fast? Um, I'm going to say yes, because Christ essentially says that you will and that we should do it. I'm going to read some verses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not that it's a command, but I'll get into that in a second. So here it says, Matthew 6, uh, verses 16 to 18. Mm -hmm. And when you fast... Okay, when you do, not if, when, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen by others, may not be seen by others, but only by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Then a few... Chapters later, uh, some of, I think it's some of John's, where are we? We're going to Matthew 9, verses 14. Then the disciples yeah. of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Okay, so... We know that fasting is going to happen. It'd be weird to have a, a rejection against fasting. Um, is God commanding you, let's say, to fast as, like, like I was saying with the Sabbath, like it's a work, like if you don't fast? It, ironically, that's what Isaiah 58 is about. Right. Which is like people are fasting because they think somehow that pleases God just by doing this work or doing this, uh, this ritual, let's say, but then they're still doing evil things while fasting. But the point of fasting is to have, as David said, a broken and contrite heart. Um, that would be at the bottom of it. So like if you feel something is terribly wrong is happening, let's say with society, you feel sick to your stomach. So you can't eat. Um, not because, you know, you ate something bad and it makes you sick. It's like truly this, there's a spiritual sickness. So you can't eat. Um, it's stuff like that where it's uh, fasting is a, uh, not just a reflection, but it's an expression of your... Um, Remorse, grief. Uh, of, exactly. Uh, of those different elements in your life and of your humility and stuff like that. And so when we say, when the question comes down to, should Christians fast? I think that depending on the context, it's a matter of what you mean by should, which direction is should applying to. Is should applying to a command or should applying to like in a situation, there's terrible evil happening. So you're repenting, you know, for on behalf of what your, let's say your town is doing or on behalf of yourself. Should you fast? Well, perhaps you should in this instance. Um, I think there's another case of, so, of a demonic possession. People don't like this one because they say it's on the earlier manuscripts, but it's yeah, there. Yeah, it's in some manuscripts. Mark That's 9. right. You're talking about Mark 9. That's right, where there's a, this, this demon comes out by prayer and fasting. But what's interesting in this whole process of prayer is always linked to fasting. Uh, prayer and yeah. fasting are interconnected. So it's not just like you fast and you, there's no relationship with God whatsoever. It's like, oh, God's some distant uh, being who sees that I'm fasting and appreciates that I'm doing the work. Um, you're intimately giving yourself to God and, and, rece- and listening to him uh, during your fast. And that's what Christ's wilderness fast was, right? He was, so it's, yeah. there's, a, there's, there's a lot going on there. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 fasting is a strategy of prayer. Maybe strategy is too loaded of a word because I don't mean it that we're trying to manipulate God in any way. That's not what I mean by strategy. Fasting is an element of prayer, is what I would say. So um, when we see fasting pop up in the scripture, it is almost always paired with repentance. I wrote down a couple of um, examples, So, but, but there are plenty. So we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we see King David praying and fasting and crying out to God to save his infant son. And then when his infant son dies, David immediately breaks the fast and stops. And his people right. are, his people go, well, well, why? And he goes, well, God gave me the answer. Like the answer was no. Is right. gonna I'm going to join him one day, but he's not going to come back to life and join me. So we see this, we see this desperation and repentance going on because of course the child 
we're told in the scripture one for one, the child was not going to live because of David's great sin in committing adultery in the first place and committing murder. We also see Queen Jezebel, so an evil person instituting fasting as a part of repentance in 1 Kings 21 verse 9 when she's trying to get Naboth uh, when she's trying to steal Naboth's vineyard. But the point is not that she's using it in an evil way. The point is that she was able to use it at all because this was, she she got the, the city to declare a fast because something had gone wrong. That's right. Right? So this was a regular part of repentance. If something's going on physically, like if there's a drought, you declare a fast to, so that God will tell you why. Yeah. There is, so it's part of repentance. We're very, we're sorry. We see this in the book of Jonah, where the king right. of Nineveh, upon hearing the message that God is going to destroy Nineveh, declares a fast for all people. It's, it's a sign of repentance. We see this in Esther, right? When Esther has her people fast and pray, we see it in Nehemiah when, with the, with the, with, when the returned exiles also declare fasting. So there is this huge element of, prayer that is repentance for not only our sin, but the sin of the people that we belong to. Right. The sin of our communities, the sin of our families, the sin of our countries. Um, it, there's, there's a level of seriousness that is shown by our physical action. Not that we fast so that we are somehow, well, God will now have to listen to me. Yeah. That, that's not what it is. It's it's marking a seriousness in your life about right. what's going on. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, yeah. No, I think so. I think you're right on. And I think that's interesting because there's been like a statistically just a, a, a down spike, I guess, in, in fasting and prayer. Mm -hmm. So now, so in other words, it's just like you just pray and there's no fasting because what's the, people are like, what's the point? Yeah. Right. And I think that attitude of what's the point or is it like, do I need to, that kind of attitude is what's killed the West right now, because mm -hmm. what it does, it's really slothful. If you think about it, it's kind of a lazy idea. It's like, well, I don't need to do it. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. There's a lot of things you don't need to do, but are they good to do? Like, I think so. And, 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 um, there's a lot of things that aren't necessary in the sense that like they amount to salvation. But I also think that being, having a, a, a wrong attitude about things is also not good either. So, um, I think it's unfortunate because fasting is our, bodily way of expressing repentance mm. um and we are soul and body we're spirit and body we're not just you know uh spirit beings and this is not just a, a ghost in the machine when it's not just wearing meat suits um we're we're our body we're going to see christ with our own eyes the very eyes that we were that he created us with will resurrect and see him so our bodies are actually part uh, are what going to be glorified? It's why Christ, when he sent to heaven, it was just, you could still see the scars. Mm -hmm. It was his actual body. He didn't get a new body. It's just, he had the same body. So, um, and, and, and the same for us. So I think that this fasting, it, what, it, what it shows is the fact that it's declined is that we've really separated our spiritual life from our bodily life. We've made, a lot of people have made all physical actions a work, which is not right. And therefore, don't do it kind of thing because it's like there's no reason to because it's a work. But they are expressions of a contrite heart. And so I think it's like, should you? It's like, well, yeah, depending on the context and why you're doing it. Um, so you should. Is it a command? Well, there's not commanded. It's like, does God command you to weep? It's like, you're just going to weep. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? It's like, he doesn't need to command that. It's like a natural reaction that, that should, just, should just happen naturally. Um or if you're and, spiritually and, and tuned. I, I, think, I think fasting is a natural thing that happens in times of great mourning. Right. At least personally, I can attest to that. Yeah. That when there's been great losses in my life, you don't feel like eating. That's right. You know, so there, there's a natural there's a natural progression in that too, natural responses where, yeah. where you can see how this can be a very effective... Again, I, I say things like tool and strategy, but I don't mean well, it in the way that... We're stronger, stronger in God in that way. So I want to just be very no, clear. But it's a, it's, it is a part of mourning and and being real. It's a part of being real in your prayer with God. So do you have to fast all the time? No. 
But sometimes but, I think, yeah, it's a really no, good to idea. To add some things, because th there's actually merit to the concept of being strategic and tactical. Yeah, tactical. yeah, for and sure. Here's, but, and, I, but I think that it, it can be loaded in, yes. in our specific cultural yes. context. It can be loaded. That's why I'm trying to be careful. Yes, take, for instance, Lent, okay, where people fast of certain things, or some people who fast off... Um, uh, before church, let's say the Orthodox, they fast from like the, the Saturday to the, the Sunday morning, let's say, um, bef before church service. When you think about fasting in that sense, like, okay, well, why do they fast? Well, to have self-control. Mm -hmm. They fast as an ascetic way to practice self-control, to have power over your body. I think that's a fine thing to do. Mm -hmm. I have no issue with that. Is that act of fasting going to somehow earn points? No one believes so. So and, and so that's why it's kind of silly to make it like, if anyone who is doing this, to make it like, oh, you're working by fasting. It's like, no, 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 no. Uh, fasting is, like you're saying, a strategy to help you get self-control over yourself, which some people might need to do. Some people might need to do that. So I think, and is it a command? Well, if like, if uh, a church leader thinks it'd be useful for you, then perhaps it's a good thing to do. Um, but once again, that's that's getting to, to different avenues, different different dynamics of that. But um I think that, again, fasting is a good thing. Should you fast? Yes, but it really depends on your heart about why you're doing it. And uh, is a command? It's not a command because it's a natural outpouring of your life. Mm -hmm. And what's the point of it? Is that, you know, what's the point of crying? What's the point of having tears? It's like, <laughs> I guess you don't need tears come down your eyes. It's the heart inside that counts, right? It's like, no, it's, it's a, they're just going to come out. I don't know. It's just bodily expressions are really important to repentance. I think that's one of them. Mm -hmm. Hey, that's it. I don't know. I think we we beat that pretty good. Yeah, I don't want to go yeah. round and round and round because we could, but I don't want. To I round tend to do that often. <laughs> no, you were great. No, you were no, good. No. It was good. This was great. So I would like to know what you guys think about some of these issues that we talked about today. What do you think about fasting? Have you had like have you fasted before? And what was what has? I'd be curious to know what your experience on the other side of your prayer and fasting was like. So if those are some things that you would like to share, pop them down in the comments below. And until next week, happy reading and happy studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.